Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Um, we thank you that we can trust it, um, that it's clear to us that we can understand it. I pray um, that you'd be with Mark uh, this morning as he um, elaborates on it, that it would be the Holy Spirit through Mark um, and not Mark's own words, that it would be your words, that we would learn just a little bit more about you today that we would have a humble heart, that we would um, just know that we can always learn more about you, Father. Uh, just be with us. Um, I just thank you for everything you've given us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> I'll be honest with you, every time... Uh, Someone's up here and they're reading scripture, especially as we go through 1 Samuel. I don't know if you're like me. I mean, I know where the sermon's going to go, but there's just sense like from sitting up front, hearing from behind, or just feeling from behind going, what in the world? Why would we be reading this passage? Why? Which is really kind of the question that we need to ask ourselves every single Sunday, right? Like we could, we could read the book of Ephesians, and it seems a lot more straightforward. Um, it's like, oh yeah, there's, there's good teaching there, and yeah, that makes sense, and I can apply it to my life, but who the heck is Doeg, and what does that have to do with me? And this bread of the presence, and David, and like, really? 
but God wrote his word for a reason. And God wrote it for his people to learn and to understand ultimately who he is. And so as God's people today, we need to step back and we need to hear this and go, what does it have to do with me? Well, that's a great question. The first thing we have to do is ask us, what does this mean? What does this reveal about God? What is he trying to teach about himself to us through this passage? And so I'm going to start this morning with just a simple question. What is your greatest need today? Don't think about tomorrow. Don't think about next week. Don't think about next year. What is your greatest need today? Maybe, maybe financial issues are on your mind. Maybe uh, food. Like, literally, we don't know how we're going to pay for our next meal. Or relational. You have broken relationships in your life. Maybe it's health. Maybe you read the news or social media this morning, which was a mistake, and you suddenly are all depressed because you see all the division that's happening in our society and in our world over a lot of different issues. And, and you, go, you get so worked up about it that your mind is so consumed by it. Or maybe it's just simply fear. Fear of this, fear of that. And it's overwhelming you when you say to yourself, how is this need going to be met? What is your greatest need today? It's not a trick question, okay? It's like, well, I know I should say financial needs, but I'm supposed to trust in Jesus. And so really I'm going to say my sin because that's the right answer. That's, that's not what I'm trying to get at. I want us to think of that one thing. What is overwhelming us right now? What is the, when I say a need, what comes to your mind? And then hold on to that. Hold on to that while we're going through this. Keep that one thing in mind because at the end of today, my hope is that we're going to be able to answer some questions about that need and how that need could be met. And if you've read the Bible enough, the answer probably is not what you expect. Or it is what you expect and you already know, and this is just a good reminder of how that need is going to be met. So we're continuing in the life of David. He's on the run from Saul. Last week we looked at his relationship with Jonathan and had to ask ourselves the questions as Jonathan did, as Jonathan did, he had to ask himself the question, who is the true king? Is it David or is it my father Saul? And he chose David. And we, at the same time, today have to make a choice. Do we follow the true king or do we follow another king? Do we follow the true king, Jesus Christ, relying on him for everything knowing that he makes a covenant promise with us that he will always keep always, or do we put our faith in other things of this world? We make them king ruling over us. The example I gave was my wife. She makes a terrible king. Somebody went up to her and said, yes, but you're the queen. And I'm like, you're missing the point. She's a terrible king and a terrible queen because she's not meant to be my king or my queen or anything else in my life to be on that throne of my heart. The things of this world make promises they cannot keep. 
What did Jerry Maguire say? You complete me? That's, that's, no. Because she can't. Only Christ can complete me. I'm her sanctification. She's my sanctification. The things of this world sanctify us, but they are not meant to be king. And yet our struggle is that we make them king and they fail us every single time. And so we have to put our trust in the true king, Jesus Christ. For all of our needs, especially our salvation. And David's on the run. He is the true anointed king. Saul knows that he's the true anointed king. And he's fleeing from Saul, fleeing for his life. Literally, Saul wants to kill him. In fact, tried to over and over and over again. And David makes his way to the city of Nob, as Luke read. It's the city of priests. And being on the run, David and those with him have to live off the land or they have to rely on the goodwill of people to support him and support them for food, just daily sustenance. And so he arrives at the city of Nob, but the only bread that the priest has on hand is the holy bread, the show bread, or what's called the bread of the presence. Now, this bread is consisting of 12 cakes representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And this bread was placed on a table inside the tabernacle in the time of David or the temple in the time of Christ. And across from that table, so imagine you've got this, lack of a better term, this, this room, okay, a hallway, and on one side you've got the table, and you've got the bread, these 12 loaves of bread or cakes of bread, and on the other side you have a lamp, the menorah. And that lamp is to remind Israel of God's glory and His presence with them. The light from that lamp that light represents God's presence. And as long as it's shining on the bread of the presence, that's why it's called the bread of the presence, as long as it's shining on it, it's a reminder to Israel that God's glory and His presence, as long as it's with them, they will be taken care of. He will always be with them. But as soon as that glory of God goes away, which is why it was such a big deal when the temple was destroyed. That's where the presence of God was, and now the presence of God is gone. And that means curse for the people. This is, this is big. This is, this is a huge deal, this bread. And the, the cakes were holy to the Lord. As long as the glory of God was with the people of Israel, their, put it in New Testament terms, their daily bread would be taken care of as God's people. And each Sabbath day, this bread would be replaced by fresh cakes. So it would sit on the table for a week. And then the priests would come, they would remove the old bread, and they put hot, fresh bread on the table. And the only, the only way, only the priests were able to eat that bread. No one else. It was holy bread. Um, and yet Ahimelech willingly gives David the old bread, who's not a priest, along with Goliath's sword. So with bread and sword in hand, David once again goes on the run. And this time he flees to Gath, a Philistine stronghold. And strangely enough, 
the hometown of Goliath. Remember the giant that was killed? So we're going to read through, continue to read through chapter 21. So starting in verse 10 through 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Okay, why Gath? Why to the Philistines? Why would David flee to this place? They're, they're the enemies. Remember that group of people that David kept on going out and killing? He flees to them. Why? Now here's the beauty of Scripture. We're not told, which means we don't need to know about it. We don't need to worry about why he did it. But what is certain is that David is recognized, understandably, and he's captured by the Philistines. So he didn't just walk through and then hang out. He was captured by them. And we know this for two reasons. First of all, the words in verse 13, in their hands, means that he was seized by them. And then in Psalm 56 which David wrote while he's in Gath, says when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So it's not my smarts. I actually just, you know, read the title of the psalm. And he's under, he's taken, he's arrested by the Philistines in Gath. And so it's not surprising then that David's a little fearful. Not only had he killed their champion, Goliath, but the blood of hundreds of Philistines was on his hands. And so David, his fear is real, and it's understandable. What's going to happen to me now? What's go- what are they going to do to me? They want me dead. I understand this. But David's next move is actually kind of puzzling. He pretends to be insane. He draws graffiti on the city gate, and he begins to drool all over himself to the point that he begins, the spittle begins to run down his beard. I mean, this is the anointed king of Israel, and look at him now. He's acting nuts, and it works. That's the crazy part. It works. The king of a- uh, King Achish says, the king of Gath says, I, I have enough of madmen around me. I don't need another one. Let him go. I don't want to worry about him. He's nuts. Let him go his way. And once again, David flees, escaping to a stronghold, a cave a number of miles away near the city of Adullam. And so now let's read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 22. David departed from there, that is from Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went out from there to, to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you, 
till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. In this cave, David begins to draw people to himself. His family hears of his whereabouts, and so they come to him. Not just his brothers, but his whole father's house, servants, they all flee to David. But he also draws those who are in distress, in debt, and what the Bible says, bitter in soul, which literally means discontented. I wouldn't call them the cream of the crop. They're upset people. They're discontented people. It's hard enough to be on the run alone, and let alone adding your entire family and the household, plus a bunch of discontented people. So what can he do? Well, he asked the king of Moab to protect his family. He says, quote, until I know what God will do for me. David may be in a very difficult situation, but he hasn't lost faith that God is still going to work for him, and his confidence is only solidified when God sends the prophet Gad. This is the first time we hear of him, this Gad. He's a reminder to David that God has not left him. In fact, God has, is, and will protect and provide for him because David is the anointed king, the true anointed king. And this is really the crux of this whole passage. David's on the run. His life is in danger everywhere he goes. He runs into the priestly city of Nob only to find the unrighteous Doeg watching him. He runs to the Philistines only to be arrested and threatened. He runs to the cave only to find his family and a bunch of discontented people running to his side. Nothing about this chapter screams, all hail King David. Let's all go to him. He will protect us. And yet David doesn't lose hope in the Lord. Instead, he leans further into God's promise to him that he will one day be king. And David's life will not be taken, and the Lord will provide for him no matter the circumstances. Maybe I should put a little disclaimer there. David's life will be taken when God decides it's time to be taken. So where do we get this? Where do we get the idea of David's trusting in God, that he leans into God, that he makes God his refuge in this chapter? Where do, where do we get that? Because even a simple reading of it, that doesn't really yield much evidence of God's providing for David. I mean, we can infer it, right? But, you know, uh, inferences, or as I love to tell my kids and they're sick of hearing it, assumptions are dangerous things. And when it comes to Scripture, assumptions can lead you down a path of falsehood and heresy and a misunderstanding of who God is. So how can we know that this passage is about God's provision for David in times of trouble? Well, many Bibles today, I don't know if you have a study Bible, um, they have references on the bottom or in the middle or on the sides and the margins, and these references actually can help us. If we come to a verse and we're struggling to understand what is actually being said here, or I feel like I've 
I've read this story before, I've heard this kind of thing before, a lot of times those references can point us to other parts of Scripture to give us a better understanding, to point us to similar situations found throughout the Bible. And the references for this section actually point us to a number of psalms that David actually wrote during this time in his life. And those psalms say a lot to us about where his mindset was. We looked at this last week. What was, what was David thinking? What, is, what was David thinking as he's sitting in, uh, under arrest underneath the, the, the Philistines and spit is just drooping out of his mouth? What, what would bring him to that? Well, he writes a psalm about it. And we're not going to look at these psalms in detail because, well, there's seven of them. <laughs> and we just don't have the time. We don't have the time. But I want to encourage you, write these down. Write these psalms down for each section. I'll, I'll give them to you. Um, and I recommend you read them later. Study them. Look at the notes. If you have a, a study Bible, look at the references. Go back. And what is really going on in David's mind? So um, Psalm, number fi- uh, Psalm 52 was written when David was in the city of Nob. Psalm 52. Psalms 34 and 56. 34 and 56 were written when he was with the Philistines. And Psalms 57 and 142 were written during his time in the cave. That's Psalm 57 and 142. Now, there's probably more, um, and you can go ahead and, and look for those. Um, but go back, read these, pass, uh, these, these psalms. But really, the main message, if we took all of those psalms together, the main message is essentially this. The Lord hears, sees, delivers, and saves the righteous those who are his servants, those who take refuge in him from their enemies because the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let me say that again. The Lord hears, sees, delivers, and saves his people, those who take refuge in him from their enemies because his steadfast love endures forever. We looked at that Last week, what does steadfast love mean? Well, the love that's being spoken there is the love that God shows to His people despite their adulterous affair with other gods. Their utter rejection of God, He continues to love them. Why? Because He chooses to. He loves them because He loves them. Not because they're the biggest, the greatest, the most faithful, the most intelligent, the biggest, the largest, the most strong. It's because He loves them, that he loves them. Now, it may look as if David is taking matters into his own hands. If we only had 1 Psalm 21 and 22, he was afraid of Saul, he was afraid of the Philistines and what might happen to his family. And so he did what he could to fix the situation, right? I mean, he's, well, I'm in a pickle. I got to figure this out. So I'm going to try this but that would be farthest from the truth. In the midst of all of it, according to his Psalms, he says, I take refuge in the Lord. Yes, acting insane and having spit drip down his beard may have been his idea. It's a strange one. But strangely enough, God used it. 
Why? Because he used it. He used David's crazy idea. But it wasn't David's idea that got him out of Philistines, hand of the Philistines. It was God who delivered him from the hand of the Philistines. And David knows it. He writes in Psalm 56, 4, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? He's saying this while he's under arrest with the Philistines. What can man do to me, he says later on in that psalm. If God is with me, there's nothing the Philistines can do. He's going to deliver me. David is hungry when he gets to Nob, but he doesn't fear that he's going to die. Psalm 52, 6 reads, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. He's, he's hungry. He needs food, and yet he describes himself as a green olive tree, young, fresh, vibrant, ready to produce fruit, not on the run for his life, probably thirsty and hungry. But he doesn't just say, yes, I'm like a tree. Look how strong I am. No, he says, I am like an olive green, a green olive tree in the house of God. Only a tree like that is found in the presence of God. I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord forever and ever, he says. Now, technically, David never should have been given, let alone eaten the bread of the presence. And yet, strangely enough, throughout all of Scripture, he's never condemned for it. In fact, they praise him for it. Why? Why would... I mean, he's not a priest, for crying out loud. It isn't God... Does it, isn't His holiness so, so great? Isn't his, his commands so clear that you violate those commands? There are consequences, right? We see that throughout Scripture. So what makes David so special? Well, it's because, not because David's special. <laughs> it's because the Lord is merciful, faithful, and steadfast in His love for His anointed King. In David's time of greatest need, the Lord showed him mercy, faithfulness, and steadfast love. And Christ actually refers to this incident with the bread in Matthew chapter, chapter 12. Now, I'm not going to go to it. You can, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, Jesus is, is um, walking through, well, you know what, it's just, I might as well just read it. Let's just turn to Matthew chapter 5, um, chapter 12. Better to have me actually read the words of God than, you know, make my own meaning or my own words out of it. So here we go. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples, disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the law, how this, on how the Sabbath, sorry, on how, how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, 
for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus' disciples, they're hungry, and as they're walking through the grain fields, they begin to pluck the grains from the stalks to eat. And the practice of leaving the edges of the field for the poor and the needy to gather the grain, it was actually commanded by God. This is what you are to do for those in need. And this is, isn't what concerned the Pharisees. The disciples were plucking the grains on the Sabbath. Thus, they were working. And thus, they were breaking the Sabbath law. How can Jesus be encouraging His disciples to break the law of God? And yet Jesus points out that the disciples' actions were not against the law of God, but against the oral traditions of the Pharisees. It's kind of like back in the old days when they said, we're not going to let you dance because you're going to get pregnant. See how that jump? Don't do this because that's going to lead to this and this and this and this and this, and all of a sudden, you're pregnant. That's what the Pharisees are doing with the law of God. They've created a long list of extra laws in order to prevent their breaking the law of God. But even if the Pharisees' intentions were righteous, their extra laws actually distracted from the true purpose of the law. Jesus reminds them of David's eating of the bread of the presence. It was unlawful for David to do such a thing, and yet David is not condemned. Why? Because David was in need. Or what about the priests themselves? If work isn't allowed on the Sabbath, then why are the priests allowed to work? In the temple, no less. I once had a, a man come up to who insisted that nobody should, no Christian, nobody should work on the Sabbath. And I looked at him and I'm like, I work every Sabbath. And he stops and he goes, but it's not really work for you. We need to have another conversation <laughs> about this. Why were the priests allowed to work on Sabbath? Because certain demands of the people's worship of God had to be met every day, including the Sabbath. And so there were some requirements of the law that were excused for the priests so that that need might be met. Now, I, I, don't, I don't want you to hear now like, well, I have a greater need than what God commands, and so I can do whatever I want because he wants to give me what I need. That's more important than obedience. That's not the point. The point is what Christ says. I have, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus uses these words in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. The Pharisees, again, are complaining to the disciples that Jesus is having lunch with tax collectors and sinners. Non-Jews, people who are not faithful to the law, why would you sit with them? You're not even, you're not supposed to be with those kinds of people. But Jesus responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ, Christ points to the Pharisees, his point to the Pharisees is that the law was created by God to reveal our need for God. The Pharisees had made the law God. 
they had missed the point that it doesn't matter how, much oral, how many oral traditions you make, you're still a sinner in need of God. you telling me, Christ is saying, you're telling me I shouldn't sit down with these tax collectors and sinners? You think you're righteous? You think you're healthy? Well, I'm telling you, I didn't come for the healthy. Okay, that doesn't mean they're actually righteous and healthy. Okay, that's a knock on the Pharisees saying, you think you're healthy, you're not. I came for those who know they need something. I came to these tax collectors and these sinners and I'm eating with them because they know they need me. You don't want me because you think you don't need me. They thought they had no need for Christ and so they rejected Him. But the tax collectors and the sinners, they realized their need for Christ. It wasn't that He loved them. I mean, yes, that's there. It wasn't that like a... Like, oh, I'm, I'm resting in the love of Christ and that's it. No, they knew Christ loved them despite them and pointed them to Him and His salvation that He gives to them. Does that make, does that make sense? The Pharisees wanted nothing to do with Christ. Their recognition, the, these taxers and sinners, their recognition of their rebellion against God drove them to the Messiah. Christ's mercy is more than a provision of daily physical needs. These tax collectors and sinners probably were doing fine food-wise. They were getting their daily bread, especially tax collectors. Man, they were raking in the dough. But their physical needs, whatever they may be, Maybe I should say it this way, our physical needs, our daily bread. Remember that one thing, it's like, what do I need today? What's my greatest need today? Doesn't drive us to try to fix the need. It should drive us to Christ. Maybe for the first time to see, yeah, I'm struggling financially, but you know what? I can have all the money in the world, but if I'm going to hell, I have a bigger need than my financial needs. I have a bigger need than my relational needs. Now, that is not saying that God doesn't care about that or, or He doesn't want to fix it or whatever. I don't, who knows what's going to happen with those things. Uh, but as God's people, we need to understand that those daily needs, those things that we see as the greatest need of our life, if it's not Christ, is meant to drive us to Him. And His mercy is more than just daily physical needs. Through Christ, our daily spiritual bread is given to. This world may take our lives as God's people, but they can never take us out of the family of God. You guys may fire me tomorrow and I'm without any money to support my family and striving this and striving that and doing this, but I'm a child of God and I know that He's going to care for me in my daily walk, but spiritually I know He has saved me forever and His steadfast love lasts forever. So what, what do you need right now? What is that greatest need? What are you experiencing in your life that is so overwhelming and is so consuming you that perhaps even as a child of God, 
it distracts you from the fact that God provides for you. Okay, maybe I should put it this way. Okay, we've talked a lot about how, remember with David and Goliath, we like to make ourselves David and like we could conquer any of our Goliaths in our life. No, God is the one who defeated Goliath. He just used David who was the anointed king and we are not the anointed king. And so what does that mean for us today? If we're going to take that, bring it here, that as the anointed king, David's daily needs, David's normal needs are being met. Why? Because God had promised to him, you will take the throne of Israel. And David knew, you're going to provide for me. So I take my refuge in you. Who is the true anointed king? Christ is. And even Christ, remember at the time in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is overwhelmed by what is about to happen. It's not about being crucified that bothers Christ so much that he sweats blood. It's not about the crucifixion that has him so distressed. It's that all of the wrath of God for all of his people and their sin is now going to be placed upon him, which means he's, he, is, he is bringing upon himself the full wrath of God. That's what makes him so distressed. And what does he say? If this cup can pass from me, Lord, make it happen. But not my will, yours. He submits himself to God, knowing that what God has planned, what God is going to do, He's going to do it. If you want to take Christ's life throughout His whole life, how many times was He about to be stoned? In fact, at one point, He's teaching, and they're so upset with Him. The crowd is so upset, they pick up stones to kill Him, and He just walks off, and they do nothing to Him. Why? Because it wasn't His time to die. God provided for Him. God gave Him His daily needs. And he promised, you will be on the throne forever and ever and ever. And as God's people, we can stand underneath the faithfulness of God. We could stand underneath his faithful promise to his anointed king, which in turn is the same to us, as David says in his Psalms. Those who find refuge in the Lord are given strength. They are provided for. His mercy is shown to them. David did it. Christ did it. And as his people, we can do it. Again, this is not a, well, I could do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me. I can break the law of God because, you know, God loves me and he's going to show mercy to me. And this is what I really need. What I have found in my life and maybe, in fact, this last week even, having it exposed to me many times. And maybe I'm the only one. I don't think I am. What I think is a need is really not a need. It's a want. I have more in my life than I could ever need. I'm sure my kids hate me using them as examples all the time, but sorry, that's my life. How many times do children, even if you don't have kids yourself, how many times have you heard children, or maybe you said it yourself, like, I, I need this. I need this tool, or, you know what, I, I need this game, or I need this, and if I don't get it, I'm going to die. I mean, it's like that dramatic, right? And you say, no, like, well, if you don't have kids, you don't understand, maybe. I don't know. That's kind of the attitude, right? Like, I need this. Like, no, you don't. 
I need you to entertain me, Dad. And my answer to them, and they will say this, my, my job is not to entertain you, it's to make sure you don't die. That's my job. And to point you to Jesus too. That's there too. God will provide our daily bread, both physically, until the day He calls us home, and He'll provide us for sure our daily bread spiritually because He is the source of life for us as His people. So that means whatever that one thing that we are holding is the greatest need that we have right now. Well, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, is it a need or is it a want? But let's say it is a need. It's a, it's a need. What, I need this, God. Are you looking to Him to provide what you need? And can we as His people be satisfied with His answer today? Who knows what He's going to say tomorrow? Like David, are we fleeing to the refuge that is Christ? Are we putting our trust in Him for our physical and our spiritual needs? If there's anything the last two years have shown us is that, yeah, life can be stinky, but, you know, we're alive, right, in here, right? We're all, yes, okay, we're not going to go there. Like, we're here. God has provided for us. And we need to praise Him for that. He has taken care of us until the day it's His time to call us home. David eventually dies. David makes huge mistakes, but God is faithful. And He does take the throne of Israel. And He rules for a very long time. And even in His perfection, even in his imperfection, he is still held high as a man after God's own heart because he found refuge in God. Christ is faithful in his mercy to those who trust in him during their times of need. Christ is faithful in his mercy towards those who trust in him during their times of need. Because he is a refuge that never fails. And so you have to ask yourself, are we trusting in him? When everything looks bleak and our lives seem on the line, are we trusting in him? Would God have been right to take David's life with the Philistines? Yeah. Well, how can you say that? Well, because God is God. And he never does wrong. And if David had died, it would have been the right thing. But it wasn't, because it wasn't God's plan and it wasn't His promise. Will we trust Him no matter what happens and no matter what we need? Father, I pray, Father, that as Your people, we would know and live a life understanding that it is You are a God who's faithful to Your promises. God, you have promised to save us if we believe and we trust in you, if we confess our sins, if we submit ourselves to you, if we bow down to you as the Lord and the treasure and the King and the Savior and the most precious thing to us, Father, that that you will care for us. 
And even should our bodies waste away, even on the way home, you should take our lives, Father, as your people. We are with you. You will always, you will always care for us. And until that day comes, Father, when we come to you and you call us home, that daily, whatever strife we may be feeling, whatever need we are, we are uh, begging for, Father, that we would not lose sight, that you will give us what we need. You will give us our daily bread each and every day, both spiritually and physically. And I pray for those, Father, who have not trusted in you. They're trusting in the things of this world. They're trusting in themselves. And they're not putting their trust in you that, Father, they would, they would have their hearts broken by your Spirit, that you would soften them. They would, you would open their eyes to see who you truly are, Father, and that through you, only through you, Father, are our true needs met because you are faithful and you are merciful and you are glorious and you are powerful and your steadfast love endures forever for those who love you and run to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our final song?